1991, Reverend Wally Schultz journeyed to Latvia to begin broadcasting the Lutheran Hour there. Seeing the great need for help and hope, Pastor Ray Wilkie followed up there the next year to visit and encourage a church mission that was surrounded with hopeless, desperate people. With a plea for continued help, Ray Wilkie gave his word. Out of that promise came the Orphan Grain Train that is now sending spiritual and material resources and food to 69 countries on five continents. Hear that story on this Action in Ministry. Inspiring you to be the hands. Empowering you to be the feet. Strengthening you to be the heart of Christ for others. Action. Action. Action in ministry. Hi, I'm Rachel Legute, and this is Action in Ministry. Picture a train heading across the Midwest, stopping town by town to gather grain that was donated to then distribute to those in need all around the world. That was the dream that fueled today's guest. Ray Wilkie knew there was something he could do to help share the gospel and meet the material needs of desperate people around the world. That dream didn't play out quite like he planned, but the Orphan Grain Train is still doing what it does today. Ray, I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you also. What was it like on that first trip to Latvia? What what struck you and gave you the desire to do something? I spent seven years in the Philippines from 1970 until 77, 78. And that broke me in many ways because I soon discovered that half of all children die before their fifth birthday from malnutrition. Malnutrition is not absence of food, but it's lack of protein. And I can't remember, I don't want to remember how many times I followed a horse-drawn calesa, a horse-drawn cart that became the hearse for a two or three or four-year-old child. We'd walk two or three kilometers to the cemetery, and then the poor folk I was with would begin digging the grave in the road. And after two feet out would come the first skeleton with little flip-flops attached still, set those bones on the bank and go down two more feet and another skeleton, and finally at four or five feet bury the child. I can still hear the wailing of the mother clinging to the child before the burial. And so... I soon discovered that children can die from malnutrition and the subsequent upper respiratory disease with a full stomach of rice. It's about the protein. And so began with a project importing pigs and distributing pigs to the community to help provide protein. We crossed American pigs that I brought with native pigs, and we got the growthiness plus the hardiness that allowed them to stay alive. And so we distributed a lot of pigs and added a lot of protein to the diets, but it made me aware that food was absolutely essential. In those days, I was sometimes criticized because I was sent there as an evangelistic minister to do word and sacrament. 
But I really had a hard time doing word and sacrament when I was standing in four feet of water from a typhoon delivering a sack of rice to a family whose house was on stilts and the pig was up in the house. So I gradually began doing both. And when I look at the scriptures, and I've been looking at them for 54 years now, I discovered that Jesus' method of doing ministry was very simple. And it's consistent. He always did it this way. That was, he met the immediate need, whether it was leprosy or broken leg or whatsoever, and then sat down for the conversation about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God includes all aspects of what God has in mind for us. So when I saw the brokenness of the Baltics and finally Russia, I was forlorn. I was broken. My wife was broken. We cried tears standing up and tears falling on our shoes at what we saw because the country was broken without hope. It was polluted beyond imagination. No birds in the trees, no live births in a city of 12 million people in St. Petersburg because nobody went there because the infectious disease ward was right next to the obstetrics ward. That was the melancholy of the whole country after 70 years of the red boot being on the neck of the people. And so in that midst of that brokenness, it occurred to me at 2 o'clock in the morning in the sanitarium where the Chernobyl victims had been taken that not only we know how to do something, but we must do something. And that was to bring food. The stories that you're sharing are, they're incredible. And I, I can see how living that experience firsthand moves a person to act. Um, and you connected that to meeting meeting a felt need, a physical need that they had there in that moment and loving them through that. I'm struck by the story that the dream started as maybe a train coming across the country, picking up grain, and you ended up bringing pigs and crossbreeding them. What did what did it look like in those early days when you started bringing food to communities that needed it? A grain dealer by the name of Gary Becker, with whom I did business, uh, told me that if you own half the contents, half the cargo on a train, you can tell it to go where you want it to go. And after seeing the brokenness in Latvia and Riga, that became my original idea. I had the idea to start a train at the Canadian border in perhaps uh, Alberta and run it all the way to Houston. Because the interest in Russia and in the whole Soviet system had been intense my whole childhood. I mean, we went under desks to hide from the Soviet attack. We built underground fortresses. I was involved in that in case the Soviets would attack from Siberia, right in the center where they couldn't be reached so easily. And they had planes that could reach us. They had nuclear weapons that could destroy us. And we lived with that fear. Well, the Russians lived with it for 70 years. We lived, it, lived with it for at least 50. So there was tremendous interest in everything Soviet because we had gotten no information out of that vast 11 time zones expanse of a country for our whole lifetimes. But we lived in fear. Did you find that that made it easier to rally people around your cause? 
Well, there was median interest. In fact, when I got back from Russia, I myself did a tour of five states and just told the story of what I'd seen. And most of the time, my heart was breaking while I was telling the story. In fact, sometimes when I tell it now, it's emotional for me because it, it, it takes me back to those horrible days. And after going to five different states telling the story, I had about $6,000 in my pocket. And I thought, well, maybe there's something here. And so we just continued to telling the story and formed a board of directors and made a first shipment to Russia or to, uh, to Latvia, to Riga. And I knew it could be done. Some folks from North Dakota who later became a branch shipped this 20 foot container to Riga, Latvia. It got it there successfully. It fell into the wrong hands, but I knew it could be done. And so we had plenty of energy and uh, plenty of contributions. And the whole idea of exporting the word of God, the zeal of God in a package, and food that would allow for not just nutrition, but for survival, uh, we shipped our first shipment, and it was a roaring success. I love that you had a shipment that you successfully shipped across the seas, but it was not, it didn't end up where it was supposed to go, but you didn't let that deter you. You said, it can be done. That's right. (laughs) My dad, when I was growing up, threw me into the workforce. I think I was about nine or 11 or something like that. And when I'd have an objection, he would say, what do you mean you can't? And so I applied that principle to this same project. What do you mean you can't get in there? And so we've gotten into some places that nobody else has gotten. We were in Nepal when the earthquake struck. First of any folk to bring aid to that mountainous country, we had to lower it from helicopters. We were responsible bringing the first military aircraft into Moscow after perestroika was established. We got support from North Carolina Air National Guard. They were delighted to go to Moscow with a C-130 jam-packed with medical supplies. When they landed, the commander of the airport exchanged hats with the pilot and they were joyfully hugging one another. No C-130 heretofore had landed in Moscow, would have been shot from the skies. So after that, we think, what? Why not? What do you mean we can't? <laughs> we I, could, we it's a beautiful testament to having a mission, wanting to love God's people around the world, and putting a little tenacity behind it. Like you've been able to do incredible work globally um, that people might have looked at and said, this isn't possible. You said, why not? Well, we had some people on board who knew how to ship and knew how to pack and so forth. And of course, our our staff is 14 worldwide. There are three in Russia and 11 here that are paid staff. The rest around the world are all volunteers. We're not quite sure how many volunteers we have, but we know it's in the thousands. It's a lot. All the branches, and we have 30 branches now, are all staffed by volunteer staff. When I think about what it takes to move food and that type of shipment, I can imagine that it really does take some specialty of knowledge on your board. And you said that you do have people on your board who who understand those types of logistics. Yeah, we do. Right now we have two young women 
who are doing it, and it's surprising how quickly they learn geography. <laughs> Quite <laughs> Djibouti and, uh, you know, to places that they had to look up on the map to first discover where they were. But then comes the challenge of getting the container through the customs. And sometimes biblical material is disallowed, and sometimes it's allowed. So we have to know beforehand, because if we get there with inappropriate cargo that is not admitted, then it's trouble for a long time. They put us into a holding pen, and sometimes that's $100 a day. So we have to be very careful about where we go, and we have all our T's crossed before we send the shipment. If we go into Africa, interior Africa, the cost of crossing the land is greater than the cost of crossing the sea. And so we have to measure how far we have to go in them. Well, let's talk about the types of resources that you pack up and ship around the world. You mentioned biblical resources, and we know that you're sending food. But what does a container look like when it shows up into a port or into the customs dock waiting to be unloaded? We never send materials that are not requested. When, when I was down in Katrina, and we stayed there for five years, there were piles as high as a four-story building of unused clothing. And they were rain-soaked and destroyed, and they became a liability. So the first thing we look at, always, always, is what do they need? And what have they requested? Then we fill that order. And sometimes it's specific, like we need food for weaned children. Because when I was in Asia, I watched these little kids, and they, have, they try to have 10, 10 children, because five will survive, and perhaps two are boys, so they have some kind of social security for their old age. So very often, the child comes off the breast at under a year because the next next child is being born. So our food provides adequate nutrition for a weaned child or for an old man like me. We make children survive by means of the nutrition that we provide. It's called Mercy Meals. We've sent 5 million so far this year, and we hope for next year to do 10 million around the world. We have the capacity to go anywhere we're allowed, and we have the network on the other end to receive and distribute. So we are sending the thing most requested. And of course, we teach our people, the love you pack into the box is the love they take out. And then identify, this is Jesus' love working through us. That's a lot of food, a lot of meals, and I imagine that that takes a lot of work. This can't be easy to ship this much resources around the world. What are some of the biggest challenges that you run into with Orphan Grain Train? Well, some of the non-challenges are volunteers. I was over the warehouse yesterday. There's six women as old as me over there, delighted to be doing what they're doing, sorting clothes. They are delighted to pack mercy meals. They're over there right now trying to invent a robot that will pack mercy meals from the ground up. 
I call them Orville and Wilbur because they're working in a bicycle rehab shop that we made. And so the next thing you'll see is our Mercy Meals robot that packs the meals that are in packets that are prepared to go around the world <laughs> less than 80 days. Well, I imagine that you've seen a lot of change over the years that you've been doing this. And you just talked about robots. Is this something that you could have imagined when you started? Never. Couldn't even dreamed of it. But that's the, that's the beautiful thing. You know, Orphan Grain Train gives a reason for somebody to do something that the Lord has been providing for them to do their whole lives. We have engineers and truckers and farmers and ranchers who love to do this because they know how. Many, most of them know how better than I know how. When they have an opportunity and permission and encouragement to do what they know how to do, get out of the way because they're going to do something pretty remarkable. And most of this stuff doesn't come from our heads. It comes from volunteers who've learned in a lifetime how to do meaningful things. Now, if they can do it for Jesus or for people whom Jesus loves, look out. It turns into a typhoon. My goodness. How many people do you think you've helped over the past 30 years with Orphan Green Train? Well, I say we have thousands of volunteers, but we have millions of recipients, literally millions. I don't know a number, but these are the folks who will get up from their pew in heaven and walk across and thank you, Rachel, for what you do. And you'll never have met them, but they know you because you did the right thing at the right time for the Lord and for them. When you started this, could you have foreseen the global reach and the impact of millions of people receiving the care and love of people here from the Orphan Grain Train? Never. I ain't that smart. <laughs> I, I think it's so incredible to hear your stories uh, and the pain that you've seen, that you've witnessed, you've seen people in in deep need around the world and watch them in some of their most painful moments. You've seen God at work. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've watched God use these resources to bring hope to people who have been in desperate situations? I think it's the Lord's intention to find the least common denominator, that is, to break us down before he builds us up. And coming home from Russia, I had wept so many tears, I could have filled several cups. I was very bad shape after seeing old women push wooden wheelbarrows through two feet of snow and barely surviving and graveyards full of red crosses, red uh, sickles and hammers and uh, horrible. But then our conscience is a wonderful thing. Because the Holy Spirit, since our baptism, works through that and says, why not? Give it a try. Then when you have encouragement from others to say, this looks pretty good. That's all we do here now is encourage each other. Encourage others. Do what Lord intended for you to do. And then they do it and we applaud. It's pretty simple. What still gives you passion to keep doing this work? Well, right now, 
feeding 10 million kids is pretty strongly on my mind. It seems like a silly question to ask when that's what you're trying to do. What gives you passion? There's 10 million people that you're trying to serve and feed and bring life to. And a good many of them would die if we didn't do this. And they would die from upper, upper respiratory disease as a result of malnutrition, something we can fix. And we got lots of grain in the Midwest. I mean, we are the grain belt, baby. And why wouldn't we do this and let farmers enjoy the pleasure of sharing their bounty? You know, I, I am somewhat of a farmer myself. And if I can get it in my head that I'm feeding kids in Liberia and uh, in southern Sudan, I farm better. Yeah. And that it's not just the food. The food gives the physical sustenance, but also that you're sending love and the message of the gospel around the world as well. Jesus' story of sending out the 70, he told them, you knock on the door, and if you're received, you go in and stay there until you leave. But if you're not received... You shake off the dust of your sandals and go to the next one. And so we apply that principle wherever we go. If we can go there, and if they'll allow us to come in and do what we do, because every one of our packages ends with the story of the kingdom of God. And of Christ's presence on this earth, breaking in to develop a kingdom of people that will love him and obey him. And... We always, always, when we have opportunity, I mean, we sat in the mud in Katrina for five years, and we were the only agency down there. Social welfare, social services couldn't do it, who were allowed because we don't take federal aid. We were allowed to share the story of Christ the King, the servant king. We did. We don't take federal money because this allows us to share the story of a servant king who washed feet. Right now on Charity Navigator, the most notorious volunteer appraisal organization out of 9,000 charities, Orphan Grain Train is ranked number six. That's incredible. That is incredible. So we get checks from Nova Scotia, we get checks from Portland, Oregon, and from Seattle, and from New York City, of people we never heard of. Because they know that we are doing this on 1.8% of the money. If you give us a dollar, we'll give you 98.2% of quality. That's good. There's nobody in North America or anywhere who's doing this for that percentage. And the only reason we can do it is because we have all you lovely volunteers. When I think about the scope of the work that you're doing and a small number of staff really around the world, this volume of work can really be accredited to your strong volunteer force. What an amazing job they're doing to bring this food and the message of the gospel around the world. According to the Internal Revenue Service, we gave away $47 million worth of stuff in this current year. And the year before that, we gave away $49 million. And it cost us pennies to do it. This is incredible. What an amazing work you're doing. From the start of an idea, from being moved 
by your lived experience around the world, an idea to bring help and hope, rallying people around that, finding people to join you in the mission, and then watching it grow and deliver hope year upon year around the world. This is so incredible. We want to inspire other people to be actively putting their faith into action as well. And I wonder if you have any words of advice to somebody who might be listening and think, I think I can do that too. I have a passion. I have a dream. I want to put it to work. What advice would you give to somebody who's there at the beginning, like you were those years ago, wondering what you could do to bring help and hope um, to the people across the seas? What advice would you give to somebody today? I would say, go ahead and dream a dream and then put some fingerprints on it and do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who put fingerprints on us that we might bear the mark of his hand. Well, Ray, I have certainly been inspired by your story. I feel like I could listen to you tell stories for hours, and I imagine that you probably have enough stories uh, to fill those hours quite easily. And I thank you for stopping with and sharing them with us today on Action and Ministry. It's been a pleasure to listen to you and learn from you today. Thank you, Rachel. God bless. Sometimes a need seems so great, the prospect of offering help seems overwhelming. But what if you begin just by saying yes? Ray Wilkie could not have dreamed how impactful that yes would be. His promise was an echo of what Jesus said in John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Ray was not only emotionally moved to help, but let brokenness lead to action, overcoming obstacles that could have stopped him in his tracks. He was motivated by hope and the desire to bring the gospel to those who desperately need it. God's work can happen in the most challenging circumstances when his hand is in it. What has God called you to do? Is there a tenacity for serving God's people bubbling up in you? Don't overlook how your own gifts and provisions might be used mightily in the kingdom. That's Action and Ministry. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rachel Legutte. Thank you for listening to Action in Ministry. We'd love to hear how you and your church are ministering to your community. To submit ideas for this podcast, visit our website, lhm.org forward slash action, and send us an email.